This Knowledge at Wharton podcast was produced in conjunction with EY's Global Private Equity Center. For more information, please visit ey.com slash private equity. So uh, one uh, obvious thing I should ask is that, um, you know, I know it takes a long time to compile this data and do all the analysis and so forth, and that's why uh, we're looking at the report on 2014 just having been released uh, this past November. However, uh, based on what you see, uh, what you've seen in 2015, um, how have the trends from 2014 continued or not? Uh, Mike, maybe you could take a shot at that one. Yeah, thanks, Steve. I think from what we've seen globally, I think we can expect some level of moderation uh, in 2015. I think uh, you know, maybe the term might be muted a little bit, although ex-activity has remained high. I mean, globally, PE firms exited companies in deals valued around over $400 billion in 2015. So that's probably enough for a, for a record, for a maybe second place, uh, most active in, year in history. And I think we saw a lot of that continued strength in Europe as well. Uh, the trade sales remained strong, and, and IPOs uh, were, were, you know, actually held up. Uh, in contrast to the U.S. and Asia, where they, they fell. Uh, and the secondary buyers remained active. So we don't have all the stats yet, but I think we can show a, a you know, pretty solid year, but just a little muted from the from 14, which was had all the things moving in its favor at, at the same time. And I think if you look back and just think about the year, uh, you know, we started having oil, oil fall in, in the, you know, around the world in 2015. Uh, it started in 14, but in 15 picked up some steam. Uh, the, the markets peaked in the U.S. about May, uh, mid, mid to late May, uh, went through the summer okay, and then obviously got into a period uh, when, when China rolled out. It had a dramatic effect on the market, causing tremendous volatility, and then essentially the rest of 2015 was a choppy year, very, very much, uh, you know, the volatility took over the marketplace. And, and I think as, as we all know on these calls and, and for the listeners out there, you know, Markets don't like volatility, potentially, uh, particularly, you know, buyers and sellers who have uh, who struggle to find, uh, you know, good, you know, clear price uh, uh, definition in, in markets where the volatility is as high as it was. And so I think we'll see, you know, reasonably strong first half, uh, balanced off by a little bit of weakness in the second half is my uh, estimate for 2015. I'm not sure where Steve, uh, what your view would be. Uh, well, I think. Um that's as good an analysis as I could give. Uh, uh, I, I'd say I'd say one one thing though that's very interesting about this is that relative to the rest of the world, for the first time in quite a while, <clears throat> Europe looked pretty stable and uh, almost a favorable destination uh, for investment. Uh, and uh, you know, to your point that uh, one of the things investors do not like is volatility and, and uh, unpredictability. Uh, so um, I, I think uh, Europe as a, as a whole um, might, although not have been a haven per se, uh, certainly more attractive. And, uh, and I wonder if that may continue to be the case in 2016. Well, that, was my, that was my next question is what, yeah. what do you see ahead for 2016, Steve? I think it's going to depend uh, almost more on uh, capital markets globally than activity in Europe. But the, this year has is, is, is been uh, in, in initiated with s some pr pretty remarkable volatility. 
uh, and I suspect that uh, that's likely to continue. Uh, Europe, on the other hand, there are some uh, analysts and pundits, and even even this past weekend, the Wall Street Journal was speculating that uh, Europe might actually be insulated from a lot of the uh, turmoil in the economy, uh, the global economy. And if that is if that is in fact the case, uh, uh, the European funds are probably going to be in fairly well positioned. And in fact, investors from outside of Europe, particularly from North America, uh, might actually have some renewed interest. What What are one of the you know one or two or three things that that uh, that that suggest that Europe could be insulated. Ah, good question. Um, I think the diversification, the diversity within the economy, as I was mentioning earlier, is is certainly one factor. Uh, the other factor is uh, Europe is a uh, by far net importer of of, of hydrocarbons. Uh, and uh, ultimately um, stands to be the principal beneficiary of uh, falling prices for oil and gas, uh, perhaps more so than countries that are producer and consumers. Um, uh, those would be two. Uh, you asked for three. Well, that doesn't matter. <laughs> I was going to say maybe it's also, uh, even though the euro has recovered a little bit, it's still it's still below where it was uh, a couple of years ago, I think, and maybe that's helping with their exports and so forth. Uh, it helps with the exports, but it also it also makes, uh, at least relative to the dollar, investing in Europe uh, perhaps a little bit more attractive. So well, it's maybe, maybe I could uh, add one to Steve's two uh, and get us to three. I think one of the things that we see, uh, you know, there's a little bit of difference right now, and maybe it's three or three and four. Uh, you know, there's certainly ample dry powder. I mean, there's over 140 billion available in Europe, you know, right now for those for assets, and, and it's becoming, um, you know, very attractive to U.S.-based investors as we've talked about. But one of the things I guess that I would add to Steve's comments, which I think are right on, is, uh, you know, the divergence between the Fed and the ECB, and we currently uh, have created a lot of angst in the world by uh, the, in the U.S., for example, raising interest rates for the first time in, in years uh, and putting us on one path. Meanwhile, uh, they're trying to be as accommodative as possible in Europe. And so I think if we're global investors, because we know that capital flows around the world and it's available to go wherever it wants, uh, global investors look at that and see you know, the ECB uh, still in an easing mode and very dovish uh, about you know, interest rate increases. Uh, at the same time, you have the Fed, you know, coming forward and saying, you know, we're, we're on we're on a path to uh, to have maybe as many as four increases, you know, in 2015, um, or 16. I'm sorry, you know, and leading into 17. So, I, I think there's uh, you know there's monetary policy differences. Adding to you know Steve's comments uh, that he made earlier. Okay, uh, another issue I wanted to touch on is that the uh, study talks about increasing competitive pressures for PE firms. Uh, there's new funds raised but not yet invested, that so-called dry powder. At least we're talking about 2014 to the extent this continued in 15 and will continue this year. Uh, we can discuss also. But one, one of the things is that, uh, and the study says, with more money, there is concern that comp competition for new investments is pushing up business valuations too high with the risk of uneconomic investment returns ahead. But then at the same time, it, uh, the uh, EY analysis showed that there's no evidence, and this is, again, for the, your 
2014, no evidence that paying the highest prices for a portfolio company negatively affects returns, which is, which is also very interesting. So uh, what's, what's your take on that, Mike? Well, it, it is uh, an interesting question because the dry powder continues to build. And uh, as I mentioned, you know, the number that, uh, that is in Europe right now available for transactions. And, and global M&A multiples have averaged you know, about 12 times in 2015, for example, one year forward from the study. But that's, you know, uh, that's a pretty high level, as you point out. And, but what we have seen, I will say, is uh, some discipline from the funds. Uh, I think a number of them that we talk to around the world say, look, we just do not want to get caught out like we did in 07. And, and you know, and a lot of times the, the exits we're talking about, for example, in 2014 that were so successful, many of those were deals that were done at the peak of the market and literally needed that stretched period in terms of hold to get the returns they needed. Nobody wants to go through that cycle again where they bought right at the peak and had to ride uh, down for a long time before they could come back up and and they're so thrilled, you know, to have exited in 14 or 15 uh, as a result of that. So we, they, we, we hear that from them. They really do not want to, you know, get out on the curve too, too highly. And I think you've seen that because one of the things you asked about earlier, Steve, was M&A in 2015, for example. Corporate M&A was, was really off the charts in 15. But, you know, PE M&A, if you will, stayed, you know, roughly flattish to, to a few points up. And so I think they were standing back, taking stock, and, and trying to determine exactly where the future is going and really did not have any interest in re- revisiting the 2007 cycle where they uh, ended up you know, with some, some very uh, horrific purchases that were ex- very expensive and, and didn't work out as well uh, at all. And, and so in many you know, bankruptcies, for example, in some very large transactions that didn't work well. But interestingly to note, and I'll pass this over to Steve, but the one thing that we took away from the study was that, uh, for the, and, and this is just empirical data and you know, trying to analyze this, but the deals that were done at under eight times did tend to show a little bit higher return over time than those above eight, if you will. So to, to your first question about, you know, is, is that not, not common sense? You know, yeah, I think there is some of that. If it's below eight, they did show a little bit higher returns. But what we did show as well, if they were from eight to 12 times EBITDA is what we're talking about here, if they were from eight to, 10, or eight to 12 times EBITDA, uh, they also did not necessarily show a diminution in return. And so what I take away from that in the study and the interviews that we did is that if people pay a higher multiple, they're in competition with others who also you know, view this as a valued asset. They're willing to pay more for it. But the thing that they're going to have to do, and many of them are getting very, very good at this now, is understanding if we, you know, as we as a fund have to pay a higher multiple, we have to have the right value creation plan in place. We have to be able to you know, wriggle out all the synergies, uh, find those efficiencies in the systems, you know, fix the supply chain, uh, enhance the footprint, find a way to grow the business in a very, very low-growth global uh, environment, and, and we just have to execute flawlessly against our value creation plan. And if we do that, we can still achieve uh, nice returns that our investors anticipate and, and uh, desire from our fund uh, without making you know, some of the mistakes we made in the past uh, at peaks of market. So I think that's the takeaway that, that I seem to, to look at the data and, and you know, kind of come to my conclusion on that. I think those are sound conclusions, Mike. Uh, the, um, 
Uh, and it, it's it's hard. It would be hard to refute them. And you know, clearly, if you want to be a participant in this uh, sector, uh, you are ultimately going to have to accept valuations that are are higher than might otherwise be desirable. Uh, there's always going to be competition for deals, and as and when in time periods when there are more funds with more capital to deploy, there is going to be an upward pressure. So then, what does a fund do? Uh, well, it 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 revises perhaps the investment hypothesis for each uh, for any given opportunity uh, and makes a, a better determination of uh, what what needs to be done and how quickly it can be done uh, this I think is is also one of the reasons why we are we have been seeing a shift particularly in Europe to having uh, among the general partners uh, either as consultants or oftentimes, as part of the management teams of the private equity funds, people with operating experiences, uh, because it, it's very clear that uh, putting the advantages of leverage aside, that uh, the real value creation is going to derive from operations. And uh, uh, f uh, basically, uh, that becomes more and more clear uh, uh, the, the more that you've had to pay. It, it so sort of focuses everyone's attention. Okay, well, I know we're talking about Europe here, but I do have one last question that I want to ask you both because it seems pretty clear that the leading candidates were in the U.S. now uh, in the Democratic and Republican primary say they will change some tax policies for private equity, meaning that certain fees will be treated as income for investors, a higher rate than, it, than the way they're currently treated as capital gains. Um, if that happens, and since leading contenders say they're going to try to do it, and if they can do it, how will that affect the industry? Okay. Well, first of all, let's be clear on exactly what we're talking about here. Uh, this is in reference to the so-called carried interest. Yes. Uh, and that is that is a factor for the general partners uh, who participate in that carried interest, and pretty much for them alone. Uh, so they they may have to make some uh, some choices about what they 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 want to. Uh, uh, what they want to do with their lives and their careers, um, you know, it, in uh, not to sound cynical, but it may be a matter of buying a forty-footer instead of a sixty-footer uh, <laughs> at the end of the day. Uh, but uh, a, a, it, a yacht you're talking yacht, about? I'm talking about a yacht. But <laughs> in, all, in all seriousness, uh, it, it'll change the income equation uh, for the um, uh, for certain general partners. Uh, I don't see how that's immediately go how that would affect the relationship with the limited partners um many of whom might actually welcome the change um i but then again we, we heard a lot of this rhetoric in 2012 and uh i think it it's it isn't so much a, uh, an issue of who wins the white house it's basically who's controlling the congress and um uh, there, there, are, there are so many priorities. I just don't know that this is going to rise uh, beyond the political rhetoric to something of action. I don't know how you see it, Mike, but that's yeah, just I, well, one citizen's opinion. Yeah, I, I think, uh, Steve, that's, you, you've got pretty good pulse of this. I, I think the one thing that I sort of get concerned about more, you know, from stepping back from the policy itself, I, I get concerned about, you know, does this disincentivize, you know, capital formation, and, and investment. And if you look at the PE industry right now, uh, we've already talked about at length during this call the competitive nature uh, and how 
much uh, there's more and more funds. There's more funds today in the in the world, private equity funds, than there were you know pre-financial crisis. Uh, there's more dry powder, I think, than we, we've we've crossed over and you know set a a record for the amount of dry powder available around the world for investment. So we've talked about the competition and the corporates that are suddenly you know feeling uh, you know strength in terms of getting out in the marketplace and doing transactions. So you, you, the competitive landscape has gone up you know incredibly. At the same time, the LPs are getting a little restless. We've talked about this before, and you know many of them are looking for reduced fee structures and ways to uh, you know co-invest and participate, which you know when they do that, that lowers the returns to the funds, if you will. Uh, and and then on top of that, uh, if we look at this um, as a potential tax increase, if you will, uh, at a time when the business is already under tremendous amount of pressure uh, than it's ever probably been, so that that's that's got to be a concern if you're running one of these funds uh, and you you sort of find yourself uh, you know battling it on all all fronts. I would agree with Steve though completely. I mean this. Uh, we have a dialogue around this with our, our private equity funds um, at our roundtables and events that we have uh, around the world and in New York, and, and it, it comes up a lot. Uh, and it just seems to be a little bit of a, you know, kind of a ping-pong ball that people, you know, kind of hit back and forth. Uh, and, it, you know, when they're looking at potential tax savings, it's, you know, is it, you know, considered a loophole by some Others would say, well, that's the way our business is run. We invest for a living, you know, so that's, that's the way, uh, you know, this business is a capital gain. Uh, and so it, it may fall its way into some rhetoric, uh, as Steve points out, on, on the Hill. Um, and uh, it becomes it, it's an easy thing to throw out and, and uh, cite uh, as something that needs to be changed. But, you know, there's, there's not, you know, full support from all sides on this. And so I think... Uh, it does become something that that rests with the uh, Congress and their ability to, uh, you know, to take this up as part of a broader tax uh, structure uh, and tax, uh, you know, proposal that that I think will come uh, after the new president is elected. So we probably don't see much movement on this until after that, at a minimum. All right. Well, thank you very much, both of you, for joining us. I just want to uh, add. Uh, I mentioned earlier this study for those interested. It is free, and it can be downloaded from the EY website. It includes an analysis of several key performance measures, including equity return, profit growth, valuation multiples, and uh, the study is based on public data and also on interviews with former PE owners of the businesses who have exited. And it uh, also includes performance data on more than two-thirds of the PE exits over the study period, which was 2005 to 2014. Thanks again, gentlemen. Very interesting discussion. Listeners can access past podcasts plus additional insights into private equity at our private equity website. And the address is kw.wharton.upenn.edu slash private hyphen equity. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.